Hey, 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 closet busters and bold move makers. It is time once again for Life Uncloset. So I want you to gather around because it is time once again to kick down those closet doors of your life. We're here to escape our BS, explore our fears, and elevate our self-expression. I'm your host, Rick Clemens. I'm the bold move expert and that coming out guy who's going to take you to the party, the pulpit, the wake, and back to the party of living your life uncloset. So come on along with me and grab hold of yourself and get ready to step out, step up, and step into facing your fears, making your bold moves, and living life without apologies. Now let's get to the show. There's a lot of history about the LGBTQ movement, and there's a lot of people who have come before us so that we could live the lives that we're now leading. And oftentimes we don't hear these stories until somebody's like, that's the story that needs to be written, and that's a story that needs to be talked about. And my guest today is somebody who found the story and realized he wanted to get this story out. And I'm so glad he did because he's bringing something about a young man named Jim Fauché who really had a huge impact in the LGBTQ life and activism and how he helped break through certain barriers. And I always feel privileged when we get to have these conversations. My guest today is Robert C. Steele. He's written a book called Banned from California. And I'm going to invite all of you to just truly dial in, listen, because who have come before us are the people that we can learn most from. So Robert, I'm so glad that you're here. We have worked. It's a little inside story. Robert and I have been trying to pull this one off for a couple of months here now. We've had schedule conflicts and things like that. But um, I'm really excited to have you on the show, Robert. Thanks for being here, man. Hi, Rick. It's a pleasure to join you and your audience. Yes. So you kind of, I know you just, you've done a lot in your own world. So let's kind of talk about a little bit of like your own journey. You've, um, you've been stationed in different places you've done national broadcasting stuff you've lived in italy you were a reporter for the armed forces all these sort of things and then you got involved in the gay coalitions and stuff when things were like it's not cool to be gay and yet out of all of this you have continued to write and be who you are and then you decided this story was worth worth publishing so why don't you take us a little bit through the era of some of us who are younger of what it was like to be truly living during the gay liberation movement. Why don't you start with that? Well, uh, Jim lived a very different life than what I've lived. Uh, Jim and I met as activists in the early 1970s gay liberation movement. And at that time, we all thought we were on the threshold of very positive expectations. And we were making exciting strides in this gay civil rights movement that we were all embarking on. And it was a new time of gay militancy and homosexuality was being discussed more openly for the first time by society and the media. And uh, Banned from California is a biography. In 1954, Jim hitchhiked 800 miles from his abusive family in Idaho. Uh, and he went to the land that the church members called a place populated by queers and fruits. And so he sets out on this adventure that redefines his life and puts him in the midst 
of the civil rights struggle of gay people across the United States of America spanning a half century. And uh, banned from California includes a lot of anecdotes of people that Jim met and places he traveled to. Uh, he met a lot of a lot of people, drag queens and hustlers, good cops, bad cops, as well as brushes with the beats and the hippies and the early 1970s gay liberation movement. Uh, he was born in 1939, and we see a half century of LGBTQ American culture through the eyes of this gay American. And it's such an important thing, I think, in this day and age, because a lot of people are like, ah, why do we even have to talk about this anymore? You know, everything is, is so much better. Okay, yes, it is. But the fight's still on. The fight to be who we are and to be fully who we are in our equality and how we are, quote unquote, allowed to show up in the world. So as you did the research and you started to learn about Jim's story, you know, kind of put us in that <clears throat> middle of the liberation movement. He said, you had, you all thought, hey, we're here, we got this done, we're kind of, we're here, we're queer, and here we go. But suddenly, it wasn't like one and done, was it? That's like, it was just the beginning, really. Uh, that's right. Um, the 1970s uh, was a very interesting time. Um, and we uh, we embarked on uh, on quite a movement, and we had high expectations at that time. Uh, life was tough for homosexuals in the in the 1950s, and homosexual acts were illegal in all the states across the country. And so, uh, this was a new time for us, and mm -hmm. uh, we were quite excited in the 70s about uh, this new movement that, as I said, we were embarking on. It was definitely a new movement. I remember <clears throat> as a young man, um, my dad's oldest brother was gay, and we lived in Northern California, and he and his partner lived in San Francisco. So my lens of what gay was, was pretty front and center even though it was, oh, we don't really want to talk about Uncle Will. We don't, you know, we, we're, you know, he was part of the family and everything. But it wasn't until later in life when I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm coming out and I came out and then went back in the closet and came out again, that I really saw the impact of just being front and center with him had in my understanding of who I was as a gay man. So as this was unfolding in real time for you guys, as it was for me, but I was a young, small boy at that time, what were some of the biggest fears that you saw and that, that you write about that Jim had of, okay, here we are, we're on the brink, you know, it's the seventies, it's the free love, it's all this sort of stuff. But what were some of the biggest fears that, hey, we think we've got this, but yet suddenly it wasn't a hundred percent. What were some of those fears that were still showing up? Yeah, we were very positive at that time. Uh, we were on the threshold of something new. And um, Jim and I uh, worked together in that movement. And mm -hmm. it wasn't really, I think that we kind of caught the right wing 
a little bit off guard in the early 1970s. And mm -hmm. it took them a couple or a few years, maybe a half decade to really uh, get up to speed and to really start challenging us. So we had a little bit of a head start. And of course, back uh, during the uh, time of, uh, of Stonewall, uh, as I said, li life had been uh, very tough. Uh, mm -hmm. Even the American Civil Liberties Union in the 1950s asserted that civil rights didn't pertain to homosexuals. Mm -hmm. And the vice squad was always on the lookout for homosexuals. And if you were convicted of sodomy, you could spend years in prison. Mm -hmm. And in the early 1950s, during the McCarthy era, you had uh, U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy embarking on a highly publicized quest to rid the government of communists and homosexuals. And in the U.S. House of Representatives, the House Un-American Activities Committee also investigated communists and homosexuals. And also, even President Dwight Eisenhower issued an executive order declaring that sexual perversion was grounds for homosexuals to be fired from their jobs. So Jim lived an openly gay teenage life in the 1950s. And doing that, doing that at the time was seen as criminal behavior. Uh, mm -hmm. Banned from California places Jim's story within the context of the civil rights movement during the Cold War and uh, McCarthyism because gay America was in the shadows. It was a secret subculture with its own clubs and customs and even code words. Uh, Jim dated older men and he said that he thought the word gay was cool to use, but that put off some of the older guys he dated because they thought that Jim and the younger guys were ruining a good code word by popularly using gay. And that right. before long, guys would be afraid to ask anybody if they were gay because everybody would have learned what gay meant. Well, it's very similar to the use of the word queer now. There, there's a generation of us that like, well, queer isn't really like something I wanted to say I was proud of. And now that uses an umbrella term to cover, you know, many of us in the, in the community. And so it's interesting to watch generationally, you know, how we moved and where we come from. But for Jim to be out that way, you're right. That was very much, okay, I'm being truthful. And I, I vaguely can remember a few times. So I was born in um, 63 and, you know, by the time I really understood what gay was with my uncle and his partner, it was close to the 70s. I mean, I was six, seven, eight years old when I was finally starting to really understand this. But even then, we were still kind of on the cusp, not like we were in the 50s, but kind of like on the cusp of, huh, things are kind of, yeah, you can kind of kind of talk about it, but it's not, not something that a lot of people wanted you to talk about. And then, of course, as everything started to happen and things started to you know move throughout the years, it started to become much more acceptable. But as you wrote about Jim's life, you said he was very much a fine, comfortable, willing to be out in his own world. But I would say that probably didn't come with like, it wasn't just a cakewalk either, correct? No, it wasn't at all. Uh, Jim, 
actually uh, in Ben from California, I detailed Jim's young life being institutionalized. Mm -hmm. uh, first, he was institutionalized when his mother placed him and his older sister in an orphanage when Jim was three years old. And Jim's older sister, Ruthie, was eight years old at that time. She'd already experienced the loss of her daddy who had died the year before. And then in the orphanage, she had to deal with the emotional trauma of being alone in a strange place without either parent. But Jim was so young at three years old at that time, uh, he told me he really didn't remember anything about entering the orphanage. So he did not remember how he initially dealt with it. But anyway, three years uh, after the kids spent in the orphanage, Jim's mother brought the kids back home to live life with her and they settled in together. But Jim couldn't remember anything about his mother before living in the orphanage. Uh, he said that she seemed like a nice lady, but he mm -hmm. could not remember anything about her. He told me he didn't think he was really capable of bonding with her because he had already lived half of his young life at the orphanage without his mother. So anyway, she married Jim's first stepfather, whose discipline that he metered out uh, actually amounted to beating Jim and his sister whenever the guy thought that the two children came under the influence of the devil. Uh, and this apparently happened so often that during one period, Jim ran away from home every day. And then at about age 13, Jim was placed in a reform school to correct his runaway tendencies and other corrigible and incorrigible behavior. And right. the older juvenile delinquents took sexual advantage of Jim. Uh, he really couldn't tell these older guys no. Uh, right. They just took what they wanted from Jim. So then the reform school staff found out that a lot of the older teenagers were having sexual encounters with Jim. And the house fathers thought Jim was at fault and told him that he was a bad influence on the older juvenile delinquents. So the training school medical staff determined that Jim was mentally ill with severe social maladjustment problems. And they transferred the 14-year-old out of the reform school and into Idaho's state mental hospital. And from then through the rest of his teenage years, Jim lived mainly at that mental institution. Uh, that Idaho mental hospital was a fairly progressive mental institution during the 1960s. And they eventually concluded that Jim was not mentally ill, but their main concern was that they were afraid that Jim was becoming institutionalized again at the mental hospital. And they tried various techniques to reintegrate him back into society. However, uh, Jim was a lot more comfortable away from home and away from society. And he could not wait to get back to the mental hospital where his real friends lived and where all the people who truly cared for him was at, were at. Uh, Jim realized deep down that he was alienated from all the other kids and from all of the people he knew in Idaho because he couldn't be truthful and tell people who he really was because after all, 
not only was he gay and running off to California, but he was living most of his teenage life in a mental institution. But this wasn't really, at that time, this wasn't uncommon. I mean, this is kind of the practical standard. The psychiatric standards was if you were this, you were a deviant, there was something wrong with you. And I don't know that a lot of people, let me just say, I don't know that a lot of younger people today really realize how things were. And even as things are changing, I mean, I, we're recording this on a day when Florida has now put their no gay um, dialogue in it's, it's on the books to potentially become a law, which just, that's all. It's almost like we're stepping back into the fifties all over again, but we're not to the point where, you know, Hey, you're getting examined, but there is like there, you know, reparation therapy stuff that goes on. Like we're going to pray the gay away and heal you and all this sort of stuff. But that era was very, very common. This was kind of the standard of how everybody saw homosexuality. And the interesting thing about Jim's story is that he went through all of these examples. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, you know, most LGBTQ history books or gay history books are written in a more academic style. And a lot of readers find that style to be somewhat dry and a little harder to plod through. So instead, I wrote Ben from California in a first-person, you're-there style. And a lot of readers have said that that makes it a very easy read and a lot more captivating read. And well, and it's also more relatable. It's just more relatable in general, too. That's right. You go through life with him, and you see all of these examples firsthand by somebody who went through it during the 1950s and 60s. And of course, since it's a biography, we follow Jim's life all the way through his death in 2006. So you followed him, you knew him, you know his story, but I'm curious for you, not only as, you know, just the author, I mean, you brought this whole story to life, but for you, what is something that you personally were impacted by that made your life better having known him and having written this book? Well, I would say that, uh, well, a couple of decades uh, after I first met him in Mm the 1990s, I did a series of interviews of Jim for Band from California. And at that time I was working full time and simply did not want to work my life away on on a book in my evenings and on my weekends. So then it was 20 years later after I retired that I earnestly began writing this book. And about six or seven years ago, I realized that I had to start getting banned from California written and published. Uh, I absolutely could not let this story be lost to history. It was an important story that I thought absolutely had to be told and offered to people. And, uh, so even though Band from California is a biography about Jim's life, it's really a lot more than that. It's a look at a certain time in LGBTQ history and the culture and history of the gay rights movement in the USA serves as a backdrop for Jim's life and his many travels. And as I said, we see 70 years of American culture 
through the eyes of this gay American. What would you say, you know, and I know a lot of this, you know, the, in the story, you pick up a lot of this, but what would you say that you feel that Jim stood for most in the life that he led? And I know picking just one thing is difficult, but if you were just kind of say the biggest thing that really stands out for you that he stood for, what would that be? I think it was that he, from the time he was a teenager, he was out. He mm-hmm. recognized uh, what he was. And of course, at that time, they didn't have the word pride for uh, being homosexual in the 1950s and the early 60s. But uh, that and his aversion, uh, you know, he grew up with a very religious mother and a stepfather who thought that he needed to beat the devil out of uh, the two kids. Because after all, as Jim told me, it wasn't him doing these things. It was the devil that was making him do these things, according to his stepfather. And that's why Jim ran away so much. And when he'd go back home, He'd end up back in uh, the mental hospital. And so he'd run off to California again, where he thought life was a lot more, a lot more better, a lot better. But it's also interesting to see that here we are all these years later. And yet in many states, this is still the way people see it. We can do conversion therapy. We can take this out of you. We can do some psychological evaluations. And, and yet, the, the American Psychiatric Association has said, this is, this is part of who certain people are. You know, And all of us who know who we are, we will stand in that power and say, I know this is who I am. I, I can't change that I know this to be true. It's at the depth of my soul. It's, it's, it's the makeup of who I know myself to be truly in my body. But yet it's, it's interesting, like here we've come from all those years to now, so 50s to early, you know, 2000s to, into this space. We're, we haven't, in some ways, yes, we've come a long ways, but in other ways, we really haven't moved that much when we hear these other stories. Oh, yeah. so I'm, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of frustrating in, in some ways, but it's also enlightening. And I guess that's why I would say I wish... And I'm not saying that all the younger generation, but these stories and this book that you've written, Robert, is something that says, let us kind of, let's hold the mirror up. Let's kind of show we're really not as far evolved as we think we are. Oh, you're right. How far we've come and how far we have to go to maintain Mm -hmm. our gay civil rights, because Mm -hmm. uh, to keep from losing our civil rights, we're going to have to be vigilant. Yes. And constantly fight for our rights, or they will be taken away. Because right now, legal briefs uh, written by conservative right wing lawyers are encouraging the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but also uh, they're writing briefs with uh, eyeing the overturning of Lawrence v. Texas, which ruled yep. that. Uh, state laws banning homosexuals uh, and banning homosexual sodomy, I should say, 
are unconstitutional. And they're writing briefs uh, hoping to overturn Obergefell versus Hodges, right. which granted LGBT people the right nationwide to same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. So people, especially young people, don't realize that those two current rights easily can be overturned by this new super conservative Supreme Court. So yep. we must stand vigilant. And one thing that, that, that Jim did that's important is that, um, you know, he, he stood up for his own rights. Uh, during the first part of his life, uh, he was subjected to uh, a lot of things. But when the 1970s rolled around, he found a cause worth living for and worth fighting for. And he felt a lot better about himself. And I think that the young people nowadays will feel better about themselves if they get involved in some way or another. Just like you, Rick, you're doing a lot of good with uh, your, your work here on your podcasts. So everybody in their own small way Whatever it is that they can contribute, uh, they'll feel better about themselves and uh, they'll feel better about life in general. I appreciate you saying that because when I started this, I was like, hey, I just I want to tell these stories and I want it to get out there. But I also realize now that, you know, we're at 500 plus episodes that this is about being vigilant too, like, you know, freedom of speech right here. You know, Absolutely. this is about telling the stories. This is about saying, this is not over. And, you know, I have young, you know, I have, you know, young adult daughters in my life and they're both very vigilant about standing up for rights and everything. And I love them for that. I also feel like there's even a piece of them that they quite don't get that when we talk about vigilance, it's like, it isn't just making sure you cast the right votes. It's like listening and really looking at the news stories and understanding what's happening literally kind of behind the scenes, but yet in front of our face, you know, and those two cases you're talking about, like there are people trying to overturn these as we sit here. And if we don't stand for what we believe in and we don't realize this is, and I'm not just talking about us as LGBTQ people. This is, there's so much that's setting the tone for if they can overturn Roe v.s. Wade and they can do Overbell. If they can overturn those, there's so many other things that they can do from a conservative perspective. And I don't think people realize these are the tests. These are the tests to see how much they can get away with. And so being vigilant isn't just in our world. It's in our Black Lives Matter world. It's in all these places. Because the more we stand up for what is right and what is what we should all feel safe to be in our world is what this is really about. And Jim's just one example of it. And we don't want to revert to the way things were. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, Jim, because of the way things were back then, Jim was institutionalized uh, in a mental hospital because of sexual deviation. And he was put in prison too. Uh, a, a few chapters and banned from California cover the time that Jim spent in prison and in the book, we learn a lot about Jim's upbringing as a chronic runaway from his dysfunctional family. And in my reporting, 
in the book, I detail his repeated placements in institutions. So it really was almost a foregone conclusion that in 1962, he'd eventually end up in prison. Uh, uh, there were a lot of hardened prisoners there and a lot of dangers. He served on a prison farm where he toiled on a chain gang. And in the summertime, life was miserable. Jim and the other chain gang prisoners were forced to endure back-breaking back -breaking work. Yeah. And the prisoners sweated under a hot blazing sun, uh, digging trenches and building irrigation structures and harvesting crops. And the work itself was physical abuse. Uh, they constantly worked and Jim and they could not stop. But uh, Jim was the closest thing to a lady out there on the, on the chain gang that the uniform field bosses and guards had ever seen out there. And for boss and Jim, it became kind of a regular routine. Boss would sit on his horse, bored out of his mind, and he'd call Jim forward and gripe about Jim's uh, work methods. So uh, Boss concluded pretty quickly that he wasn't going to be successful in transforming Jim to, into a masculine laborer. So Jim was forced to endure the chain gang and prison farm. And then after the chain gang, Jim eventually was transferred to the main prison where he was segregated with other queer prisoners in an area called Queens Row. Uh, he was confined there inside a solitary cell all by himself. And the Queens were kept separated from the bulls. And getting to know Jim was difficult for most guys in prison because the guards maintained a close watch over him. Uh, whenever guards escorted Jim uh, throughout the prison to appointments, He'd flirt around and blow kisses to the other convicts to make them feel good. And in turn, they'd wink at Jim and make wolf whistles to him. Right. And uh, Jim acquired a lot of boyfriends throughout the prisons who communicated with him through love notes. And these mm -hmm. love letters were secretly passed back and forth by runners who swept and mopped the tears and delivered uh, food trays. And uh, Jim's so-called boyfriends would send him these love letters and commissary gifts that Jim thought he needed so he could better endure prison life. Wow. What an incredible story. So for you, what, what's like the pride and joy of having written this story and sharing it with the world? What's the thing that brings most to your own heart and soul? Well, the fact that I, that I am able to share this story with everybody uh, because Banned from California has garnered excellent reviews. Uh, Publishers Weekly said that the book was a lively and moving vi uh, biography and a vital contribution to the history of LGBTQ life and activism in the 20th century. And they said that Jim Fauché's life fascinates and his tales crackle on the page. And, uh, well, it brings, it brings the reality to life. You know, it's one of those things. And, and we've all, from Stonewall to everything else, you know, again, we hear these things. But until you truly had that personal 
like connection and you you hear the story behind it you know um it's 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 something that you just can't put you can't put a um value on until you have that that oh my gosh here's the real story you know that's right it, it it's a uh story of an activist and it makes clear why a story matters that it's a compelling look at an eventful life that uh that actually you get to live this through Jim instead of just hearing it uh, put in some academic form that this happened and that happened. We actually live this life. Right. Well, it was interesting for me, and I'm going to draw the parallel here. So it was probably 2000, probably around 2013, 2014, that I, I discovered PFLAG parents, families, friends of lesbians and gays, which now just basically is PFLAG. <clears throat> and I started speaking on some of their panels in colleges and universities. But then suddenly when I understood the real story about who Jean Manford was and that she marched with her son, Morty, in the first, what would become the first of many pride parades at Christopher Street Liberation Day in New York City, that suddenly, okay, this meant something. You know, and they used to meet in, you know, the Methodist church in Greenwich Village. And, and it was like, wow, okay, now this, there's something here. It brought it to life. It's not just, hey, we, we have this beautiful, you know, organization that we're trying to do good with. Same thing with Trevor Project. Same with Band from California. These stories are important to be told because they have impact. And right now we need impact. And anybody who's sitting there going, oh, they'll never get away with doing any of that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I don't want to be doomsday, but I'm like, again, you said it best. I feel Robert is, you know, we need to be vigilant. We need to be truly vigilant. Watch what's going on around us. Be aware. Think outside of the box of why some of these things are, you know, important, even though we may think, I don't think we need to make a big deal out of it. Each of these things has an impact from the past into our present and into our future. So, um, so I'm so glad you wrote this book, man, because I think it's a fascinating tale. And I haven't read all of it, but I've read bits and pieces of it, getting ready to have this conversation with you. I'm just curious if you could, you know, if Jim was sitting right there next to you right now, what do you think he might want to say to our current and future generations about doing what you need to do um, to be vigilant? Well, as I said, he would definitely say, get involved. He did, and he felt better about himself because he put his destiny in his own hands. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't at the mercy of life any longer. Uh, Jim told me that almost every gay person he'd ever known has suffered to some extent at the hands of their heterosexual parents. And his childhood and teen years clearly qualified him as an abused child at the hands of his fundamentally religious mother and his sadistic first stepfather. So he felt a lot better about himself. And he would tell your audience to get involved and you will feel better about yourself. So any other books in the work for you? 
No, actually, to tell you the truth, uh, I was always more interested in reporting and journalism, and that's what I did in my uh, career. I never aspired to being a book author, and I'm retired now, and I got this story out there, and uh, to tell you the truth, uh, that's it for writing books for me as far as I'm concerned right now. Um, I just want to kind of kick back and live life with my husband and enjoy life right now. I got this story out there and that's what was important. And so that's in my future, just taking it easy and enjoy retirement with my husband. As you should, as you should. So, um, you guys, how long have you been together? I, I always love to hear those stories, too. Uh, well, we met at work uh, 35 years ago. Wow. And uh, so we've pretty much been together uh, for 35 years. Uh, mm-hmm. We've only been married, though, for a couple of years. Uh, for a long time, we thought, ah, we don't need to get married. What do we need to get married for? But then... It became obvious that legally and because of wills and our finances that it really was better for us to be married. So we did it uh, for that reason. Yeah. So did we, but we also realized that, hey, by two more people being added to that mix, that's two more people they have to fight to try to take this away from. So um, that's right. It'll be, it'll be somewhat hard because after all, if they give it back to the states, if the Supreme Court uh, rules that it's states who will decide uh, issues of marriage, um, then what happens to all of us who are in states who want to take it away from us? Do they right. nullify our marriages? It's going to be a can of worms if they It'll do It'll be that. a huge can of worms. Yeah, exactly. So... Well, I have so enjoyed finally getting to have this conversation, Robert, and I'm really glad you put this book out in the world. I think it's a valuable read for anybody who is like, let's understand more of the history. There's beautiful books, but what I do like about this book is the story is what carries it. Yes, you can find books on academic, as you said, the academic story of here's what happened, here's when it happened, here's the dates, here's what happened, you know, here's the story of, you know, the whole, you know, Greenwich Village stuff and, you know, Stonewall and how that came into play and then other things along the way. But sometimes to just hear the story, like the heartfelt, soul-centered story does as much good as, okay, let's academic remember all this stuff, you know. And uh, I'm glad you took the time out of your life and put it into your space and brought it out to the world. In fact, one of the things I like to offer when I have an author on the podcast is, Whoever would like a copy of Jim's book, I will buy that person, whoever sends me an email first to rick at rickclemens.com, says, I would love to read Robert's book about Jim. Um, I will get a copy of it sent to you and make it part of your own personal home library. So, um, Wow, Rick, that's wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely, my friend. And, and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed reading the bits and pieces that I've had time to read and it will get, it will get read. All of it will get read. Um, But no, I love that you have done this. It's written really nicely, easy to read, love the energy and the essence of the story. And um, 
bless you for like taking the time to bring this into the world, my friend. Thank you. They can read more about it on the website of the book, yep. which is bandca.com or even on um, Amazon. They've got a lot yep. about the book on Amazon. Yep. And, and we'll have links to all that for those of you who are listening that you'll have links to the website as well as where to get the book on Amazon. And um, I highly, highly, highly encourage it. I think it's a great story. And again, Robert, I'm, I'm just glad we finally pulled this off, man. It's been great it to get to spend some time with it did, but Hey, it's been worth it. So um, thank you again, my friend, enjoy your retirement, enjoy your husband. I know you do after 35 years, I'm sure there's days you're like, yeah, today I would not like to enjoy him. I've been there I'm 20 years with my guy, but um, you know, it's, it's those stories and the longevity that you bring. So as a elder in our community, I salute you for what you've done and the longevity you guys are modeling that, Hey, contrary to what people say, Gay men can actually have really long-term relationships. So uh, thank you again. And I appreciate you being on the podcast so much. Thank you, Rick. It's a, it's an honor to be on your podcast with you. Thank you. Hey, 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 Life Uncloseted family. Another episode of Life Uncloseted has come to an end. And it is time for all of us to sashay away and go face our fears, make those bold moves, and stand up to living our life without apology. But before you do, I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you hop over to iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or wherever it is that you're listening to this and just give us a little bit of love if you like what we're doing here at Life on Closet. Here's what it does. It helps other people find the show. It helps other people get to know what we're all about. And you just might help change life. In fact, if you really want to change a life, we'd love it if you just ask a friend to take a listen and see what they think. So that's it. Love you all deeply. I'm Rick Clemens, the host of Life Uncloseted and never stop stepping out, stepping up and stepping in to living your life uncloseted.